Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. I've titled the message Resurrection this morning, and I've listed our text as Philippians 3 verse 11. We're actually going to consider elements of verses 8 through 11 this morning. So let's begin, as we typically do, by reading the passage, and then we'll dig into it. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to review briefly, one more time this morning, something that we've talked about in more detail two weeks ago. When, and that we touched on again last week. And that is uh, that we listed the things that Jesus accomplished on earth in order to secure our redemption. Now, the first thing that Jesus did was that he fulfilled all righteousness. He met the standard of righteousness that God had set for all men. Then, the second thing he did is that while he hung on the cross, he suffered the wrath of the Father for our sins, for the sins of all those he came to save. He paid the penalty for our sin. Third, the third thing he did, and this goes hand in hand with the second, is that he died. He submitted himself to physical death because that was also part of the penalty for sin. And then fourth, the accumulation of it all, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death, and he proved it by his resurrection. And then we noted that in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that we need to somehow share in each one of those things. In Jesus' righteousness, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. In verse 9, Paul talks about having a righteousness, not my own, a righteousness that comes from Christ, through faith in Christ. It's something that I gain from him, and it comes 
through faith. In verse 10, Paul talks about sharing in Jesus' sufferings. We can gain the benefit from Jesus suffering the wrath of the Father. That's what it means to share in his sufferings. That the payment he made is credited to my account. Also in verse 10, I may become like him in his death. And then in verse 11, Paul talks about resurrection. That I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So everything that Jesus accomplished on earth for the sake of our redemption, we participate in. In some way. We don't contribute to it. That's not what we mean by uh, participate. But we certainly take part in it as a recipient of God's grace. So over the last three weeks, we've dealt with righteousness, with suffering, and with death. And that uh, brings us to resurrection. What does it mean that I, that we may attain the resurrection from the dead. But as I said a moment ago, it's more than just that statement, that by any means possible, I may gain the resurrection from the dead that we want to focus on this morning. There are three elements, three things that hang together from verses 8 through 11 that I want to consider this morning. First, I want to revisit the idea of knowing Christ. In verse 8, Paul wrote of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then in verse 10, he begins that I may know him. So that's the first thing we're going to consider this morning. But in verse 10, he doesn't stop with just knowing Christ. He adds that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection is the second thing I want to consider this morning. And then finally, in verse 11, the accumulation of all of this, of his righteousness and suffering and death, of gaining him and being found in him and knowing him. It all leads to resurrection from the dead. So those are the three things. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. Knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, and attaining resurrection from the dead. So we'll begin with knowing Christ. And it's evident from our text here in verse 8 that for Paul, knowing Christ was more than just a passing acquaintance. Uh, there's a whole spectrum of what it means to know someone. I get asked from, from time to time, and, and I'm sure you do too, do you know so-and-so? And yeah, I've met him. I'm familiar with who he is. I know what he does. 
If I met him on the street, I'd recognize him and I'd greet him. So yes, I know him, but I don't really know him. So there's this whole range of knowing people. It starts with those casual acquaintances and it goes all the way up to your closest, most intimate relationships, your spouse, your children, or parents, your closest friends. Well, what is it that distinguishes those close relationships from the more distant relationships? What's the difference? Three things, and this certainly isn't an exhaustive list, but three things are value, Generally, you value your relationships, and the closer those relationships are, the more you value them. The people you value most are usually the ones that you have the closest relationships with. Second is commitment. Now, sometimes that's very deliberate and intentional, as with spouses who pledge faithfulness to each other when they marry. With close friends, it often just develops. But commitment often defines a close relationship. And then third is reliance. You generally rely on your close relationships for something. You get something out of the relationship, and you come to depend on that relationship for whatever that is. There are other characteristics of close relationships, but I chose these three because these are all here in this verse and in the following verses. These are the characteristics that Paul assigns to his knowing Christ. So let's look at them. Paul says the surpassing worth of knowing Christ of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's a statement of how much he values knowing Jesus. It's of surpassing worth to him. This is all that matters to Paul. Everything else in his life could go away. And in fact, he counts everything else as loss. He just wants to know Jesus. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. And Paul sold everything to gain that treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. And Paul sold all his other pearls in order to have Jesus. Paul looks on Jesus and he loves him. He adores him. Nothing else matters to Paul like Jesus does. Jesus' worth surpasses everything else combined. The next characteristic that I want to point out that Paul assigns to knowing Jesus is that he knows him as my Lord. This is Paul's commitment to Jesus. This is what's required in this particular relationship, and Paul is sold out for it. He defines Jesus 
as his Lord. And he lives accordingly. This is what Paul means when he writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now, that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything he does is done for Jesus, in submission to Jesus. Paul died to everything else. His life is now Christ. And the third characteristic is seen in calling Jesus Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says, in order that I may gain Christ, or Messiah. He's Paul's Savior. And then everything in the following verses explains how Paul relies on Christ for everything. It is a righteousness not my own. He depends on Christ's righteousness. He shares in Christ's suffering. This is Paul's reliance on Christ. He relies on Christ for the righteousness that will give him right standing with God and will ultimately gain Paul entrance into heaven. In the next chapter of Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then a few verses later in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul counts on Jesus for everything that he needs and he tells us that we should too. Paul says that all of this is part of knowing Christ. He wrote back in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. That's all there was for Paul. It's all that he cared about. To die is gain, he adds. And then he goes on to explain that if he dies, he will be with Christ. And that is far better he says. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul writes here. He writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to preach nothing to you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that what he wrote? No, that's not what he wrote. He did not write that he decided to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wrote that he decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. There's a difference 
This isn't just what Paul wanted to convey to the Corinthians. Nothing but Jesus and Jesus crucified. This was as much for Paul as it was for anyone else. At the end of chapter 1, here still in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote of God choosing the foolish and the weak and the lowly to accomplish his purposes. Paul figured out that he, Paul, was foolish, weak, and lowly. That's why he couldn't come to the Corinthians with lofty speech or wisdom in chapter 2, verse 1. All he could do was know Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verses 3 and 4, here in 1 Corinthians 2, he writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. There was no way that Paul was going to rely on his own wisdom and his own strength. He knew that the Corinthians were not going to be saved by his words. And he knew that he, Paul, he wasn't going to get through this using his own strength. So he resolved to know nothing, to value nothing, to commit to nothing, to depend on nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Understand this. This isn't just about what Paul preached in Corinth. It's what he lived in Corinth for his sake as much as theirs. And look at how that manifested. Picking up in the middle of verse 4, Paul writes that his message was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul resolving to know Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 2 led directly to this demonstration of the Spirit and of power and to the power of God in verse 5, when in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 10, Paul also links knowing Jesus with power that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection. And that brings us to our second heading. Knowing the power of his resurrection. And here I want to return to 1 Corinthians 2. Because we have some unfinished business here. I want to identify what Paul means by demonstration of the spirit and of power and by power of God. How was the spirit and the power of God demonstrated in Corinth? First, he's not referring to signs and wonders. To, to miracles that the Spirit empowered him to perform in order to prove that the message was true, to persuade them in that way. 
It doesn't really follow that Paul says he came in weakness and then that he did mighty works, even if those works were done by the Spirit's power. It also doesn't make sense that Paul would have deliberately avoided the kind of rhetoric that would have fascinated the Corinthians and persuaded them, but then engaged in these spectacular works in order to persuade them. According to F.F. Bruce, the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power refers to their actual conversion. The power of the Spirit, which was demonstrated in the Corinthians, was that the Corinthians believed the message that Paul preached, even though it was not in plausible words of wisdom. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power was that these Corinthians were given faith to believe a message that was foolishness to men. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power was that these Corinthians went from spiritual death to spiritual life. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power was that these Corinthians went from being God-haters as all men begin, to being God-lovers. And that conversion took nothing except the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the Spirit applying the power of God. That's it. That is the power. That is how you know it was God. Because they weren't persuaded, not by fancy words and not by impressive signs, if they would have been persuaded by seeing miracles, it would have been them processing what they saw and then arriving at a conclusion. It would have been, at least in part, their own response. But this was all the Spirit, all the power of God. And do you know what power is necessary to do that? The power of his resurrection. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's necessary to bring spiritually dead people to spiritual life. No other power could do this. And if you know Christ, if you have gained Christ, if you are in Christ, then this power has done a work on you. But, and I want to emphasize this, it is not a one-time exercise of this power on a believer. It's not that this power works on you at your conversion and then that's it. Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The two go together. As long as Paul continues to know Christ, and that will be forever, he can know the power of his resurrection. Paul confirms this in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prayed that you may know 
What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe? According to the working of great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This same power that took Christ from dead in the grave and exalted him to the highest conceivable place That same power is at work in you. If you are in Christ, it has already brought you to life. But it isn't done with you. It is at work in you right now to continue to transform you into the image of Christ Jesus. And ultimately, one day, to present you holy and blameless before him. That is the power of his resurrection. And that brings us to our final heading. Attaining resurrection from the dead. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, Paul writes in verse 11. And when he says, by any means possible... He means by the means that God has ordained. That is the means that is possible. The idea here is that every other means falls short. Everything that Paul used to count on, circumcision, Jewish heritage, tradition, self-righteousness, none of those means works. The only means possible is having Christ's righteousness and sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. That is the means by which one can attain the resurrection from the dead. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 3, he writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Now, this passage in Romans 6 is not about water baptism. Water baptism is a representation of what's going on here. But in these verses, Paul is talking about what happens spiritually to believers. In fact, when Paul wrote this in the middle of the first century, that word that he used here, baptizo, simply meant immerse. And every Greek speaker would have understood it that way. In secular Greek, a boat sinks at sea, goes all the way under the water, and this is the word that's used. That boat was immersed Now, I don't tell you that this morning to make an argument for the correct way to baptize people with water. That's a subject for another day. As I said, this passage isn't about water baptism. This morning, I just want you to understand 
what Paul wrote here. And not to be distracted by denominational debates about water baptism. What Paul wrote and what his readers in Rome understood was this. Do you not know that all of you who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? We were buried, therefore, into immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is how you should think about your relationship to his death. That you are completely immersed in it. That what Jesus did, what he accomplished, specifically the payment of your debt, suffering on your behalf, defeating sin and death for you, now surrounds you. That you are encompassed by it. That you are immersed in it. His death is your protection. That is what is going to keep you safe when death comes calling. The only way that you will survive death and then enter into eternal life is to be immersed in his death when that happens. Because he is the only one who has ever survived death. Now others have experienced resurrection, but it was a different kind of resurrection. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, the effects of his death were reversed. He was restored to his state before he died, but his body was still subject to death in that he had to die again. Death was not defeated. It was just delayed in Lazarus' resurrection. A battle may have been won, but not the war. Jesus was the first one to fully defeat death. The first one to escape its grasp. And the only way that anyone else can ever advance past death and into eternal life is to be united with Jesus in his death, to be immersed in his death. And if we are united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that is the only means possible that I may gain resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul wrote, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea behind a, a first fruits is that it proves the viability of what comes after it. You plant a crop, 
and you tend it, you irrigate it, it grows, and eventually it ripens, and you harvest the first of the produce, and it's good. And then you know that the rest of the crop will be good as well. Jesus is the first fruits for us. He is proof that this works, that a man can die and survive death and then emerge on the other side and enter eternal life. Jesus did, and all those who are in him, all those who are united with him in his death will do the same that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may gain the resurrection from the dead. The key is his death. Without his death, there is no resurrection. And everything else is in vain. If he didn't die, then we're lost. And there's no hope for us. But he did die. And it was sufficient. He died. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Proving that his death accomplished all that he set out to do. So now we're going to remember his death, as he asked us to do. He asked us to remember his death often. And he gave us this means of doing so. He gave us this bread to represent his body, his physical body. This was an actual physical body death. And he gave us this bread to remind us of that so that we might remember that he went to the cross and he died in our place. When you partake of this bread, remember that it was his body that hung on that cross. He gave us this cup to represent his blood. Scripture says that blood must be shed. That is the penalty for sin. If blood wasn't shed, then the penalty for sin was not paid. But blood was shed. Jesus' blood was shed for our sin. And the cup reminds us of that. And we Remember, the Lord gave this remembrance to believers, to those who are in him, to those who have his righteousness credited to their account, to those he suffered for, who are made like him in his death. If you know the Lord Jesus and the power of his resurrection, then you are invited to partake this morning, but do so in a worthy manner, consistent with the purpose that Jesus gave it to us. This is to remember him and his death, 
the singular most important event in all of history. Don't make it into something else. Don't cheapen it by partaking flippantly without really considering our Lord and what he endured in his death for our sake. So I'm going to pray, and then Tim and I will distribute first the bread, and then once everyone who's participating has been served, I'll read a passage from Scripture, and then we will partake together, and then we'll do the same with the cup. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for what your Lord, or what your Son, the Lord Jesus, accomplished. Thank you that he was willing to humble himself as a servant and become obedient to death, even death on the cross. Father, thank you that he gave us this table to remind us of that so that we might remember him as he desires us to. Father, I pray that you will give us focus to think about this in the way that the Lord Jesus desires us to, that it would be a blessing to him, an act of worship on our behalf. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for what it represents, the Lord Jesus' body. Thank you for the cup. Thank you that he willingly shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.